All right, you guys ready to get into God's word? Open up to the book of Acts. We are still in chapter two. Can you believe that? Now we are three weeks into chapter two and we are not gonna finish today, but we will finish next week. But we are gonna be looking at Acts chapter two and looking at verses 37 through 41. You know, there is... Have you ever felt the, that guilt feeling? It could come in various forms, but I've, I've experienced guilt throughout my life. Um, when I first started dating Liz, you know, in, in the triplet, she's a triplet, not that she has two identical sisters, but that's her maiden name. When, we, when I first started dating in the triplet home, they, birthdays are a big deal. Now, me growing up, birthdays really weren't that big of a deal. You know, I might wake up, my have a card on the table and we would go out to my favorite restaurant that night and celebrate. So it was never a big deal. But in the triplet family, my goodness, it's like a holiday. And so I, that first year had forgotten Liz's birthday. (laughs) And I have never made that mistake again. But I forgot that birthday and I lived that entire year with this guilt, you know, that I had. And so I think every single birthday from that point on, the guilt that I've had, I try to go really big for Liz's birthday to, to appease that guilty feeling. And I think I'm almost there, right, Liz? I've, I've done some good things, you know, besides Buffalo Wild Wings and uh, Celtics tickets. What else have I done for your birthday? A puppy that you didn't want. We're getting better. But guilt, it's something real. In fact, in Tokyo, Japan, there's a garden. And in this garden, people are given, uh, each of them are given a small statue to dress or to decorate. And they do this in memory of a baby that was either aborted, miscarried, or stillborn. And and there are 20,000 of these statues in this garden. And on the walls of this memorial garden, there, there are small plaques where the parents can write notes to the child. And a lot of these notes are parents asking for forgiveness uh, to their child who they had aborted. And one of those notes read this. It says, the note said, you are our baby. I will never forget you. From the bottom of my heart, I ask forgiveness forever and ever. And this memorial garden has become this way of helping those who are struggling with the decision that they had made years past. When, when R.C. Sproul, who happens to be one of my favorite theologians of all time, he used to debate all kinds of different various atheists and agnostics from around the world. And he would say about those times that he, he could spend all kinds of time, this great deal of time with a person explaining his position and defending it. And a lot of times he, he'd make a friend from it. Those conversations, they were cordial and he would, he would make new friends. But there was typically a question that, that ended any pleasant conversations that he had with them. The question he would ask is, what do you do with your guilt? What do you do with your guilt? How how do you reconcile it? And he said he never, never had a single atheist or agnostic who could answer that question. The men in the passage that we're looking at today, they're dealing with this sudden rush of guilt. One that they had never experienced before. In fact, look with me at verse 36 and 37. It says, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. In verse 37, Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? They feel guilt, they feel condemnation. They're convicted and they're, they're not really sure what to do. And you, you see, this is what happens when the word of God is preached. 
This is what happens when the word of God is preached. That's why Isaiah 55, 11 says, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. What's the most important thing about a church? Is it its website, its facilities, its programs? Or how about just the general vibe on a Sunday morning? These are the things over and over and over that I keep hearing when I go to these, these church conferences. All I hear about is your web presence, your, your, your facility. And, and just to let you know, we care about those things. If you haven't noticed, we've, we've actually invested a lot of money into our facility lately because this is God's house and we're gonna take care of it, right? So we believe in that. I think we have a decent website. I think we have a decent uh, online presence. And all those things are important. But I'm telling you, the preaching of the word of God is so critically essential for the spiritual vitality of every church because, listen to this, because it's the primary ordinary means of grace. You take that away and you've removed from the church God's primary means by which he is pouring his grace into the lives of the congregation. God had only one son, and guess what? He made him a preacher. He didn't make him a blogger. He made him a preacher. Didn't even make him a writer or an author. He made him a preacher. He made him a preacher, and that should really serve to show us how important preaching is. And then, and then he went and trained his 12 disciples. He had 12 disciples, ended up replacing one of them. And when he sent them out, he commissioned them to preach. To preach. In Luke's great commission, they, they were to go and preach repentance to the nations. Listen. In Acts, one out of every five verses is a sermon or is a powerful witness, a verbal witness being given. Did you hear that? One out of every five verses. The book of Acts is a book of preaching. I hear all the time, we wanna, we wanna have a first century church. Do we really? Is that really what we want? Because if we do, then we need to get back to the priority of preaching the Bible. I mean, if you read the pastoral epistles, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Titus, it's a manual for how the church is to function. And you just take a pen and underline preaching, teaching, or the ministry of the word of God and see how important the preaching and the teaching of the word of God is supposed to be in the church. Challenge you to do it. All throughout the Old Testament too, it's not just a New Testament thing, all throughout the Old Testament we see over and over again the important role of, of the prophet, the role of the psalmist, and we, we see the ministry of the word of God. So if we're serious about the Bible, then we need to be serious about the importance of the ministry of the preaching of God's word. It's the lifeline in the church. History tells us that. You just go back, you look at history. Every single mountain peak in church history, without any exception, or when the church is committed to preaching God's word. You go back and you look at every single revival, it starts with someone being committed to God's word, taking the people back to the basics, taking them back to the place where they are gonna commit themselves to God's holy word. The low valleys, the wilderness times in church history have been where there has been uh, no preaching of God's word. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the famous British expositor who ministered at Westminster Chapel in London for 30 years, he spent a lifetime investigating revivals, studying revivals. And guess what he concluded? That biblical preaching played a major role in the history of revival. I mean, we see it all throughout Acts, so we, so we probably should believe it. But all the revivals in history confirm it. If Acts isn't enough for you, all the, his, all the revivals in the history confirm it. Biblical preaching 
We see it in the Reformation. Luther, Calvin, Knox, Ridley, all these guys, incredible, phenomenal preachers, not because they were so articulate with how they presented the, the message, but because they kept to the word. In the 17th century, you had exactly the same thing, the great Puritan preachers. Guess what? They got back to God's word, biblical preaching. And even in the 18th century, Jonathan Edwards, the Wesleys, Rowland and Harris, they were all incredible preachers. It was an era, though, of biblical preaching. Get back to God's word. Whenever you get Reformation or revival, there's always this, inevitably, the result is if you're preaching God's word, the Holy Spirit's gonna move. In fact, preaching the Bible is God's instrument to shake the nations, transform communities, and shape the lives for God and eternity. This is clearly seen in history when the Holy Spirit moves. And I need you to see this here. It, it isn't even the preacher. You understand this? It's not the preacher, it's, it's what he's preaching. It's not the preacher, it's what he's preaching. Apart from the word, if you're taking notes, write this down. Apart from the word, apart from the Bible, the preacher's helpless. In our text today, Peter stood up and he knows that he's helpless apart from what the word has to say about what was going on in that particular situation. He knows that. He knows that his authority is completely based on his knowledge of the word and his explanation of the word. There's this tone of prophecy throughout his preaching, and that's because he's going to scripture. I know, I've preached two messages on this already, and I, I know I keep going on and on and on about how important biblical preaching is, but don't miss it because we need to understand it. If the preacher does not have the word of the Lord, then he has nothing to say, nothing. Peter's quoting prophets here. And let me tell you this, if the prophets don't have a word from the Lord, they've got nothing to say. These prophets would stand up in the Old Testament, they would say, thus saith the Lord. And they would start to give the word of God. The preacher today, his responsibility, my responsibility is to come before you and say, thus saith the Lord, and to deliver the word of God to the people. So I better be going to the Bible. Amen? <laughs> and that's exactly what Peter's done here in Acts chapter two. Apart from the word, the preacher's helpless. But not just that, and listen to me, not only that, but apart from the word, the church is powerless. Apart from the word, the church is powerless. Preaching God's word is a fundamental mark of a healthy church. Scripture, scripture was the foundation upon which the church is built here in Acts two. That's exactly why next week we're gonna read verse 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. And we go through the whole book of Acts, and we are, we, we love the Bible. We're gonna be in the book of Acts, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. You know what we're gonna see over and over and over again is the role of the word and the proclamation of the word is key to building the church. It's what we're gonna see. It's the foundation for the power in the church. If we don't believe God's word, or if we value the wisdom of man over wisdom of God, then we're putting ourselves in a really bad place. Then we're in a dangerous position to be in. Verse 37, look again, it says, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart, cut to the heart, and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, what should we do? Cut to the heart, it's a Greek word. I think I'm gonna say it right, but I got a C minus in Greek, so katanuso. It's to pierce or to stab. It's, it's the word being used here. We talked about it a little bit last week, but they, they were essentially, they're devastated by this news. And, and that just shows you what the Holy Spirit can do through the word of God. 
Because you need to think about this. Some of these people who are cut to the heart were probably would have been the same people we read about in Matthew 27. The ones who were calling for the release of Barabbas. You remember that? They wanted a criminal instead of Jesus. Then they cried out for Jesus to be crucified. And this same group of people who mocked him while he was dying, they were mocking him, saying, let him, let him save himself if he's the son of God. These people who were so cold-hearted towards Jesus Christ are now cut to the heart. They saw him in life, too, just so you know. They heard the claims from his own lips to be the Messiah. They saw Jesus working miracles, and that wasn't even enough. And I even think it's possible that some of these people that Peter is preaching to were the 500 who saw Jesus alive and are still cold to Jesus. And all that happened prior to this very moment. Nothing changed them. And then Peter preaches and says they were catanuso. They were pierced and cut to the heart. And that's the power of the Holy Spirit. You see, the Bible describes this threefold relationship between the Holy Spirit and the believer, and it's represented by three Greek prepositions, para, en, and epi. Look at John 14, verse 16 through 17. I'm going to read it from the, I'm going to read it from here. It says, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, you know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. In you, So with you, that's the para relationship, the, the coming alongside. And then the, the N, uh, the phrase in you, it's equivalent in our English preposition uh, for in. He's going to dwell in you. So the Holy Spirit dwells with a person prior to converse, conversion, and that's what we're seeing here right now. It's the Holy Spirit who does the convicting. The Holy Spirit's the one who convicts of sin. He's the one who convinces people that Jesus Christ is the answer. He's the only way. In fact, the Holy Spirit's often been called the hound of heaven, and I like that. I like that term for the Holy Spirit, because he chases us and he pursues us like a hound on a scent. That should change the way we even pray for people. When we have lost friends, we're praying that the Holy Spirit convicts them. It's what it's going to take for them to come to Jesus. They need the Holy Spirit to, to convict them. The hound of heaven. So that's what's happening here. The Holy Spirit is going to make somebody feel so bad about something so they can do something really good. And that's come to Jesus. Then the moment somebody does believe, the Holy Spirit then comes into that person's life. The Holy Spirit is with each one of us, bringing us to Jesus. And when we come to Jesus, the Holy Spirit begins to dwell in us. That's why Paul could say what he did in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19 through 20. He says, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Anybody who's made Jesus Lord of their life has the Holy Spirit dwelling in them. The Holy Spirit gives us power in our life to overcome sin. The Holy Spirit is the power in our life to conform us into the image of Jesus Christ. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. We have this dynamic power of the Spirit in us which comes when we accept Jesus. The Holy Spirit begins that work in us, transforming us into the image of Jesus Christ. Then, then, there's, there's a third relationship to the Holy Spirit. And we're also seeing this in our text today with what Peter's doing. This third relationship, it's separate, it's distinct from the first two. So we've been talking about this relationship this, this last few weeks. We saw it in Acts 1.8. We see the promise, at least. Verse Acts 1.8 says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has 
come upon you. Upon you. So this relationship is when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. The word is epi in, in the Greek, which means upon or over. And, and this work, this, is, this work is the objective work of the Holy Spirit. The first work is subjective, when the changes and the transformation takes, transformation takes place within us. But this coming upon experience, it provides evidence of this dynamic power of the Holy Spirit, allowing us to be effective witnesses. That's what we're seeing here. That's what Peter's doing here. That's why he's able to stand up and preach and he's seeing his preaching make a difference. The Holy Spirit coming upon us. You know that's God's plan, by the way. That your life be the instrument through which he can reach the world around you. Did you know that? Do you understand that? A lot of times believers don't. They don't get it. They don't understand that God's plan is that he works through you to reach the world. That he works through you to bring people to Jesus. He does that as the Spirit, Holy Spirit flows out of your life. Jesus made three promises. He made three promises to us and, a, and about the Holy Spirit. He's gonna be with you, and that's what we've already talked about. We, we saw that, the people are being convicted. Nothing that Peter can do apart from the Holy Spirit. He will be in you, that's when we come to know Jesus, and he will give you power when he comes over you or upon you. And we're seeing this in Peter's sermon. So we're seeing this in our text, the power of the Holy Spirit working through his word. The Holy Spirit has come upon Peter as he was preaching, and the Holy Spirit is with the listeners, and now they're cut to the heart. And don't be surprised, because Peter was preaching God's word. (laughs) The word of God was was not Peter's, or, or the word of God was Peter's sword that morning. The Bible was is my sword that I use, that I wield. It's the Bible, partnering with the Holy Spirit. The Spirit chose to do his piercing work in an awesome way, so it resulted in 3,000 people being cut to the heart. Just so you know, Peter is a guy that had some previous experience with a sword, right? You guys remember John 18, 10? Jesus is arrested and Peter, oh, Peter, you gotta love him, takes a sword and actually cuts the right ear of one of the men who came to arrest Jesus. He actually takes the sword, swings at this guy. I I think he probably missed. Thank God Peter missed. He gets the ear of this gentleman. He uses the sword. That's what he does. That's That's what he's trying to operate in his own power, right? Fight in the way he knows. And all this was this embarrassing mess that Jesus had to clean up. And it showed Peter in the flesh doing the best he could with a literal sword of human power. But when the resurrected Jesus changed Peter's life and when the power of the Holy Spirit had come upon him, he did some, some much more effective cutting. Cutting hearts, opening them to Jesus. This is what Peter could do in the power of the Holy Spirit. Doing God's best with the sword of the Spirit, God's word. Which sword has more power? Why do we as the church constantly think we are just as guilty of Peter? We don't pick up a sword and swing it, but over and over and over, we think our ideas, our methods are better than God's. Over and over and over again, I've gotta take God's word and I've gotta doctor it up and I have to make it appealing to people. Who am I to think that? This is God's word. This is God's word and this is the plan. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, preaching God's word and lives are changed and lives are convicted. You take that away, you have nothing. You're just, we're just a Peter swinging a sword. 
and then Jesus has to clean up our mess. And when they were convicted, they asked, what should we do? What, what, what should we do? Probably my favorite verse in all of Acts. Probably because I'm a preacher. <laughs> it's, a pretty, it's a pretty awesome response. What should we do? Here we read about people who were the most rebellious, the most stubborn, but now they're no longer resisting the word. They're no longer resisting the Holy Spirit. And they say, what? What do we do? What do we do? God, I, I, I stop right now and I pray that you would fill us with your spirit and with your word so much that we would begin to experience this every week. People responding by saying, what should I do? God, I pray that over our church and over this body right now in Jesus' name, amen. Verse 38, and Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. <laughs> so in response to the question, what should we do? Peter, Peter has an answer. <laughs> Peter's got something to give him. Instead of people wanting to, and he's gotta be pretty excited about this, by the way. Because <laughs> I don't think Peter knew what the response would be when he preached this. You have to remember, before Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit, he was hiding and he was hiding because he didn't want to be crucified like Jesus. And now he's willing to stand up and preach this bold message. And I want you to know, I don't think Peter knew the result. So he's got to be pretty happy. Instead of Peter getting dragged out and crucified, they're asking him, what, what should we do? <laughs> and in response, Peter says, I got, I got something you need to do. And you, you need to know what this means. The fact that Peter responds to this question. We have to do something to be saved. I know a lot of you just said, I don't understand. I thought you said, Jesus, God does all the saving. He does. I thought you said, without the Holy Spirit, we can't come to Jesus. That's true. But his response shows us that we do have to do something to be saved. It doesn't just happen. Peter doesn't say, nah, sorry, nothing you can do. If God saves you, you're saved. If God doesn't, doesn't save you, you can never be saved. It's true that only God could do the saving. The people, though, now don't miss this, had to receive salvation. They had to do it through repentance and faith and faith leading to the action such as baptism. Repent, I know we don't like that word. In fact, I remember one of the very first preaching seminars, you say, Justin, why do you even go to those? I'm starting to ask myself the same question, really. Keep hoping that, that it's gonna be a time of prayer and enlightening, but I keep walking out of these things frustrated, angry, and mad. The first, the first one I went to, I was just a youth pastor and I went to this uh, preaching seminar that was put on by the district. And the good thing is it wasn't put on by Ohio. <laughs> I was in another district at the time. And I remember going and I remember them saying, preachers, you gotta be real careful, certain words that you use. And I remember just feeling really uncomfortable with that. I don't, and then they started giving a list of words that you need to be careful. Uh, these are words that don't do very well. They don't settle well with people who are coming into your church. And one of the words was repent. Don't use the word repent. And I'm thinking, <laughs> why don't we just change the whole story then? I mean, really, like, how do you not, how do you get around not preaching repentance? Repentance is the way to Jesus. So what are we, what are we trying to, to tell these people? There's many ways? Because that just goes against everything the Bible teaches. 
Bible's, Bible teaches repentance. I know it sounds like a harsh word in the mouths of preachers, but the ears of many listeners, but it's an essential aspect of the gospel. You can't get around it. Did you know that, that repent, and, and rightly so, has been called the first word of the gospel? You know, when John the Baptist preached, he said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, Matthew chapter 3, verse 2. When Jesus began to preach, he, he did what? Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, Matthew four seventeen. And now when Peter begins to preach, he starts with repent. Now, before going any further, it's important that we clearly understand what repentance really means. And, and it's not a New Testament concept, just so you know. In the Old Testament, two Hebrew words help us understand repentance. The first word is uh, nakam, which means to turn around or change your mind. The second is the word sub, and it's used over 600 times in the Old Testament. So it's not a new concept. And this word is translated by other words such as turn, return, seek, or restore. So what you'll see often is phrases like to turn to the Lord with all your heart. And then when you come to the New Testament, you need to know that the Greek word, uh, man, all these Greek words in one lesson, metanoia, which literally means to change the mind. Repentance fundamentally means to change your mind about something. It has to do with the way you think about something. You've been thinking one way, but now you think the opposite way. That's repentance, the changing of the mind. So, you know, a good way to, a good illustration would be this. Suppose a man wants to learn how to parachute. And by the way, I'm going to do this. I just turned 40, and I'm going to jump out of a plane to celebrate 40 years of being alive. Right, Liz? She's going to do it with me. <laughs> So let's suppose this guy wants to learn how to parachute, and he goes to a parachute school. I don't know if they call it flight school. I don't know what they call it. Parachute school, flight school, whatever it is. And they show him how to rig up his gear. They show him how to pull the ripcord. They show him how to land safely. And finally, the day comes when they take him up in an airplane, and he's scared to death. This is the day, the day has finally come, but he's too afraid to back out. Okay. So the moment comes when he has to jump. He goes to the airplane's door. He sees the ground 7,000 feet below. His legs are starting to grow weak. He's, he's about to throw up, and somebody behind him is trying to push him out. And I've heard they really do this. I've, I've Googled it, and I've seen a YouTube video of like a 93-year-old woman literally being pushed out of the plane. So if that doesn't scare me, I'm, you know, I, I don't know what would. But... His legs are weak. He's throwing up, and somebody's trying to push him out. And at the last second, he says, no, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. Go ahead. You can do it, his instructor shouts. No, 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 I've changed my mind. He replies, I'm not going to jump. And he doesn't. That man has repented. He's decisively changed his mind. And that story illustrates how repentance works. Do you understand that? Repentance is, an, is a change in how I think, and, how I th and a change in how I think that leads to a change in how I live. When you really change your mind about something, it's going to change how you think about it, talk about it, feel about it, act about it. Because real repentance is more, it's, it's not just a mental thing, it's this decisive change in direction. It's a change of mind that leads to a change of thinking, that leads to a change of attitude, that leads to a change of feeling, that leads to a change of values, that leads to a change in the way you live. That's repentance. Repent in the, in the Greek in the New Testament simply means to turn around. 
In fact, it's a military term describing a soldier marching in one direction and doing an about face, a 180 degree turn. And it's when, when it's used in a spiritual sense, it means to change your heart, your mind, and your habits. It's what happens when you come to Jesus. You don't, you don't reject him like you did before. Now you believe that Jesus Christ is the son of the living God and you do a spiritual about face and it changes everything. You don't just change your mind about Jesus, but you change your mind about sin and now you learn what it means to honor God. You realize that it's no longer about performance, about a hard attitude that confesses Jesus and seeks to honor him in every aspect of your life. Peter said, repent. He didn't, he didn't say believe, and I want you to notice that, but, but here's the truth. You have to know that the Bible usually uses these concepts together. Repentance and faith are two sides of the same coin. Both are necessary to be saved, and they're both dependent on each other, in fact. So when it comes to salvation, you cannot separate faith and repentance. You can't do it. You've got to repent in order to come to Jesus. I will not take the word repent out of my sermons. I'm gonna preach God's word week in and week out. And the, the word says repent. You wanna know Jesus, you've got to repent. You have to repent to know Jesus, okay? You, you understand that? To be saved, you gotta place, and you gotta place your faith in Jesus. You gotta do that for the forgiveness of your sins. But this, these, this, this decision requires a change of your mind. Repentance is gonna be changing the way that you live your life and both happen at the same time, okay? So repentance describes what coming to God is. You can't turn towards God without turning from the things he's against. Did you hear me? You can't turn towards God without turning from the things he's against. And this makes me love the word repent. Why? Well, because the word repent carries with it a lot of hope then. It's a good word. I don't need to hide from this word. This is a good word. It carries hope with it. Think about it. It says you don't have to continue the way you've been going. You can turn to God. That's a hopeful word, repent. Repent and be baptized, he says. Every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. This was the second thing Peter said they've gotta do. Now, for them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ was an expression of their belief, and, and not just belief, but their complete trust in Jesus. The sign that you've made the decision to follow Jesus is baptism. Baptism is a public declaration that you are following Jesus. In fact, we won't jump to it yet, but in verse 41, we see 3,000 souls were baptized. 3,000 people. That means for 3,000 people, that day marked a turning point in their lives. The day they crossed the line. Now, it was just a symbol, and I want you to notice that because you need to notice the order. He didn't say be baptized and repent. It's repentance first and then baptism. Why? because baptism is an outward sign of an inward change. So it's important that you see that because some people are gonna take this verse as a proof, proof for uh, you have to be baptized in order to be saved. That doesn't line up with the rest of scripture though. Jesus would have never said to the thief on the cross, hey, today you're gonna be with me in paradise if you had to get baptized first. Baptized is an outward declaration of an inward work that's happening, okay? Now, I want you to know this. Get, it, get ready for this, because this Easter could be that day for many of you. On Easter Sunday, we're going to give you a chance to cross that line and be baptized. On Easter Sunday, right here in our sanctuary, we're going to do it. Okay? 
You can say, yes, I'm choosing Christ. I'm receiving his offer of salvation. Maybe even some of you, you, put your, you trusted Christ as Lord and Savior a while ago, years ago, but you've never shown it through public baptism. This Easter can be your opportunity to do that. That was Jesus' first command too, by the way. So here's the truth. I want you to be baptized. If you haven't been baptized, I want you to be baptized. Stop putting it off. Sign up. Make a public declaration that you are following Jesus Christ. Maybe you're sitting here this morning, you're thinking it's not important. Well, this is what I would say to you if you feel that way. It's a command of Jesus. So who are we to decide which of his commands we're going to follow and which ones we won't? That's not really a good way to start a relationship, is it? Obedience always leads to blessings. So take this small step, get baptized. Maybe you made the decision to get baptized when you were a kid, but you really didn't know what you were doing. It was more like mom and dad's decision, and you didn't really understand what you were doing. Get baptized. Make a public declaration. You know what it is now. Get baptized, okay? Go for it. Verse 38, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So as they repented and and, and demonstrated faith and obedience by baptism, the gift of the Holy Spirit was going to be made, was going to be given to them as it was given to the original disciples. Peter also specifically promised that the promise of the Holy Spirit would be given to those who believe in all succeeding generations. Before, he said, all who are far off. It's you. We're pretty far off, right? No mention of just being good for the apostolic period, but, but down on through the church ages. Verse 40, and with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So Peter's sermon, he didn't just stop when they asked, what should we do? He keeps going. He continued to urge the crowd to come to Jesus in repentance. Come to Jesus, this crooked generation. First of all, any generation that's responsible for putting Jesus to death is a crooked generation. But since every generation is responsible for Jesus' death, every generation needs salvation. Big idea here is people in the world are are living their life sinfully, rebelliously, and foolishly. It's crooked. It's not straight. It's not the way it's supposed to be. And Peter's stressing this really important idea here. You're either going towards Jesus or you're going towards sin. That's the trajectory of each of our lives. And you can't say you're going towards Jesus and sin. You can't say that. Never met anybody in all my life who said, yeah, the closer I get to Jesus... You know, the worse I became and the more sin I committed. Because Jesus and sin are in opposite directions, okay? And it's acknowledging that. You're acknowledging the fact, my back has been towards Jesus, but my face has been towards sin. And now, by God's grace, I've turned around, I've turned my back towards my sin, and I've turned my face towards Jesus, and I approach him for forgiveness and for ongoing help to not go back to that pattern of living I used to do. I have decided to follow Jesus, no turning back, okay? So that's why Peter preached repent. Can I, go on, can I get a little more teachy on repent? Can we just keep, keep hitting this nail, whatever they say? <laughs> if, we don't repreach, if we don't preach repentance here at New Heights Church, the Holy Spirit's grieved. The Bible's ignored and Jesus is dishonored. And I, I get it, I am... I am so aware of the culture I live in. Trust me, I get it more than anybody. I I get all the Facebook messages. I think we've been kicked off Facebook like six times. I I understand the world in which we live in. I'm very, very aware that I live in a culture where the greatest virtue is tolerance, 
diversity, and love. And those are all, those are all great when, when they align with the way God wants to do it, right? And I get it. If I tell someone they're wrong, that means, man, I'm intolerant because I'm rejecting diversity. Um, I'm rejecting all ways, all paths. And when I preach repentance, uh, I preach that Jesus is the only way. Well, that's not loving. But what you need to understand is, is this, that God is very tolerant. He's very to- He's putting up with a whole lot right now. Can I say that? He's tolerant. For goodness sakes, God is so, so tolerant. He's very tolerant, and he's very diverse. In fact, he welcomes people from every language, tribe, tongue, nation, background, gender, sexual orientation. Just stay with me. Education level, their, their capacity. He's diverse. He calls everyone. But get this. He calls everyone to do what? To repent. He calls everyone to repent. Come to me and change doesn't matter who you are, he's calling you to come and repent and change your ways, change your mind. That's what he's calling you. And guess what? That is really loving. Man, that's so loving. I mean, wow, that's so gracious and loving because people living in sin, that's rebellion against God. And if God says something's wrong, then it's wrong. If God says no, the answer is no. If God says stop, the answer is stop. And if you don't, guess what? You're going to die and stand before God and you will give an account for your eternal life and you could suffer forever under the conscious eternal torment of hell. So isn't it pretty amazing and gracious of God to offer forgiveness? Repent and receive forgiveness? Repent and receive life? That's pretty stinking amazing. That's why 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Verse 41 says, so those who received his word were baptized and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. 3,000 souls were added to them. Man, I'm gonna pray one day. (laughs) I believe it can happen. I believe we could have 3,000 souls whose lives have been changed. I believe that. I really do. But the day of Pentecost saw an amazing harvest of souls. The church went from about 120 people to 3,120. Man, that is good church growth. That's amazing. You think about how how this touched lives beyond that one day, because many of these 3,000, they were undoubtedly pilgrims who came to Jerusalem for the Feast of Pentecost. God was doing something. They expected something special from God, but not anything like this. Many in the crowd went back home, traveling far from Jerusalem, taking the good news of Jesus with them. Those who gladly received his word were baptized. Those who believed on Jesus that way went on to make a dramatic statement in baptism. They would not have submitted to baptism unless they were fully convinced of who Jesus was and their their great need for him. That's what's happening here. Now, I know some of you are thinking, how in the world could you baptize 3,000 people? I would love to have that problem, by the way. Wouldn't that be an awesome problem? Well, I have read in history books that they would have had huge resources of water available on the Temple Mount and and pools and reservoirs nearby, so it wasn't difficult to find a place where the baptisms could have taken place. Did you know after the... In 1990, they had their very first summer harvest crusade, 
and there was this mass baptism at Corona Del Mar. They couldn't count how many were baptized, but more than 5,000 people attended the event. It was reported as the largest baptism service in American history, and it happened at Pirate's Cove, which happened to be the same place that Pastor Greg Laurie, who held the event himself, was baptized by Lonnie Frisbee. So we have the beginning of the church here in Acts 2, and, and the beginning of the church growth program. Rapid church growth program. Suddenly they had this huge experience of growth. And I want you to know this, that as we, Liz and I have almost been here three years now. <laughs> sometimes it feels like uh, 20 and sometimes it feels like one. <laughs> we love it more now than we did two and a half years ago. And I love what God is doing. We have seen the Holy Spirit doing some pretty incredible things. I am more and more convinced, and this is what I told the board when I came, and it's, I am more and more convinced of it now than ever. We need the Holy Spirit and God's word. And I believe this church is gonna experience growth. I believe we're gonna see people come to Jesus. I believe this is gonna be a place that people come in, get filled with the Holy Spirit. Their life is overflowing with, with the power of the Holy Spirit. And we're going to continue to do what we've always done, and that's touch the world. I truly, truly believe that. I've been able to lead three people to Jesus in the last three weeks. Isn't that something? And I know some people would say, what's the big deal, three people? Well, I've been here for almost three years, and I, I don't get to lead a whole lot of people to Jesus. And I don't know what, we've, we've had more people interacting online, more people just starting to watch. Some of that's because you guys are sharing that online and we're getting all kinds of people watching. And then they go find me on Facebook and they'll direct, directly uh, message me on Facebook. I have been able to lead three people to Jesus. That's what it's about. That is what it's about. That's why we do what we do and I want more of it. I wanna see more people come to Jesus. I wanna see you guys realize that the Holy Spirit is in you, wants to come upon you and wants to overflow through your life so you start reaching your neighbors and your co-workers through the power of the Holy Spirit. I wanna see a move of God, amen? And I'm excited. I am truly, truly excited for what God is doing. Now let me close by reminding you of some unbelievable, unbelievable good news in this text today, all right? It shows us that even if you're a murderer of the Son of God, I mean, that's what verse 36 says, they murdered the Son of God. Even if you're that, God himself stands ready to forgive you, ready to forgive you. And not only to forgive you, but to give you his spirit. That means he's willing to cancel all your debts and then come and live with you and guide you and change you and empower you. And you can't get it on your own. You can't earn this. You, you can't buy this. It's a free gift, a gift for those who repent, those who change their mind on Jesus, for those who turn from darkness to light, for those who call on the name of Jesus. I love the quote from C.S. Lewis. We don't come to God as bad people trying to become good people. We come as rebels to lay down our arms. L listen. I don't know if there's anybody in here who's never made that decision. Maybe you've never laid down your arms. Maybe you've never truly surrendered your life to Jesus. You've never made him the king of your life. And really all it is is a simple decision. You come and you repent, that's it. You have a change in the way you think and that change is gonna affect the way you live. You simply say, Jesus, I am a sinner 
in need of your grace and your forgiveness. I repent of my lifestyle, I repent of my sins and I ask that the blood that was shed on Calvary would cover my sins, that I could experience your, your forgiveness in my life. And as you do that, the Holy Spirit comes and lives within you and your life is gonna start being conformed to the image of Jesus. I'm telling you, if you've given your life to Christ, you need to look like Jesus more and more. It's the power of the Holy Spirit. So what I wanna do is I'm gonna open the, we're gonna do it. We're kind of making this our culture, by the way, if you haven't noticed. We wanna give people an opportunity to respond to the Holy Spirit and respond to the word of God. So every single Sunday, and I mean every Sunday, we're gonna open our altars. We're gonna allow people to come up and pray and the worship team is gonna play as long as there's people here. This is gonna be what we do. And it's, it's, I'm gonna officially dismiss. It's 11.57, I did it, we got done by noon. <laughs> but the worship team is gonna play. We're even gonna have prayer, our prayer team come up front and you can come up and pray. We just wanna pray, pray for you. I really believe the Holy Spirit doesn't just operate in Kentucky at Asbury Theological Seminary. He doesn't, he doesn't just move in certain, he wants to move in the lives of those that call Jesus their Lord and Savior. And I believe today we got a lot of people with some really big needs going through some big issues, whatever they are. Some people grieving the death of loved ones. Some people may be working through a bad marriage. Maybe you've got somebody in your life that's battling a sickness or an illness. Maybe you have a sickness and an illness. And the thing I love about God so much is that he's not a God that's distant from us. He's close to us. He's a God that says he, he's our healer. He can do things that we never thought were possible. He just wants, wants us to partner with him in prayer. And oftentimes prayer, you gotta get the right attitude in prayer. Don't come up, don't necessarily come to prayer and it's, you think it's you telling Jesus what to do. Prayer's us partnering with Jesus, partnering with God to accomplish his will. When you, when you, when you view prayer the right, right way, man, God can do some powerful things. So I, I just wanna encourage you, if you've got a need today, I want the prayer team to come up front. We wanna pray with you want to pray for a miracle in your life. And I promise you, some of you are thinking, man, I need this situation change. I promise you that sometimes the biggest miracle that God does is he changes you in the situation. You walk out of here different with a changed perspective because you've had a divine encounter with the divine God. And that's pretty amazing. So as we close today, I'm gonna pray, I'm gonna dismiss you. Our altars are gonna be open. Our prayer workers are gonna be here. And again, if you've never made that decision, I'm gonna give you an opportunity to make that decision today. If you're watching at home, I hope uh, the gentleman I prayed with last week who had to pull his car to the side of the road and make that decision. I hope, I hope you're watching today or that you're in a church today. But let's just pray, if you're somebody watching and you've never made the decision, all you have to do is invite Jesus into your life as well. Father God, we come to you right now and we worship you, we praise you. God, you are an amazing, good God. And we are so thankful for what you're doing here at New Heights Church and what you're doing in our lives. And we want more of the Holy Spirit as we commit ourselves to your word. We want your power and your authority operating in our lives. God, there are a lot of empty seats today. I thank you that the seats are being filled and we're seeing more and more people come. We're a growing church and I praise you for that, but I want to see these seeds filled with people who need Jesus. And so God, light a fire in our hearts. Help us realize we are all called to this. 
that the Holy Spirit can operate through us and it can be your ministry extended. The great things that you did, we can see and we can experience and we can see life transformation and life change. It's not about us. Peter was helpless without you. He made a mess when he tried to take things into his own hands. He only started being effective when he surrendered completely to the Holy Spirit. When he realized apart from you, he could do nothing. And so God, that's our realization today. Fill us with your Holy Spirit, I pray. Fill us with boldness. Let the Holy Spirit overflow from our lives and touch the lives of those around us. And if, if there are folks here who have never made the decision to follow you, I pray today that they would simply admit their sin to you, make you the Lord of their life, and commit to following you and obeying you. That's it. I pray this over all those that would be saying that prayer today in Jesus' name, amen.